Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath. And my name is Rahul Damania, and we come to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Today's episode is dedicated to non-invasive and invasive ventilation in children post-hematopoietic cell transplantation. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Courtney Rowan, MD, MSCR, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, and the Director of the Pediatric Critical Care Fellowship at Indiana University School of Medicine, Riley Children's Health. Dr. Rowan's research interest is in improving the outcomes of immunocompromised children with respiratory failure. She is active in this field of research and has led and participated in multi-centered studies. She is the co-chair of the Committee of the Hematopoietic Cell Transplantation Subgroup of the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigators Network. In our podcast today, we will be asking Dr. Rovan about the findings of a recent study published in the journal Frontiers in Oncology, reporting on the risk factors for non-invasive ventilation failure in children post-hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Dr. Rovan is on Twitter at CM. Rowan, R-O-W-A-N. I will now turn it to Rahul to start with our patient case. A 15-year-old female with history of AML, status post-allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, T plus 15 days, presents with tachypnea and new oxygen requirement. She has been on the bone marrow transplant floor for 48 hours after being admitted for respiratory distress and fevers. Her blood cultures are negative thus far, but she is continuing to be febrile intermittently. Her chest x-ray shows nonspecific haziness with no focal opacities and underinflation. Her weight is up 2 kilograms in the last 48 hours. She is found to have increased work of breathing and mild desaturations to 88%. She is placed on high-flow nasal cannula and continued on broad-spectrum antibiotics. A respiratory viral panel and SARS-CoV-2 PCR testing is sent. Transfer to the pediatric intensive care unit is initiated. Dr. Rovan, welcome to PQ Doc on Call podcast. Thanks, Rahul and Pradeep, for having me. I'm so excited to be here to discuss one of my favorite topics. I have no conflicts of interest, but I am having funding from the NHLBI through a K-23 Career Development Award. Today, we will be discussing the up-to-date evidence for non-invasive ventilation, which includes high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive positive pressure ventilation use in children who have had bone marrow transplantation. Additionally, we will be discussing the use of invasive mechanical ventilation strategies, including high-frequency oscillatory ventilation in the pediatric bone marrow transplant population. To start us off, Dr. Rowan, why is the bone marrow transplant cohort different from other patients admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit? Well, I think we all know as intensivists that the bone marrow transplant patients, they're different from the other patients that we see in the PICU. One, I think as ICU doctors, we have to be very prepared for these patients because the population is growing. There's an increasing amount of indications for a bone marrow transplant, which means that they're going to end up in the ICU more often because there's more patients um, to deal with. Also, when they come over, the cause of their respiratory failure is not always as identifiable as they are in other populations. We know that they can have infectious disease and non-infectious disease. 
And even in the setting of pneumonia, we know that they're at risk for the common things that we see in other patients, but also opportunistic infections that we have to be worried about. From a non-infectious standpoint, we can deal with common things that we see in other patients like fluid overload from renal dysfunction, but these patients are also at significant fluid overload burden from the massive amount of medications that they need, burden of antibiotic volumes, and the recurrent need for blood transfusions that these patients have. And finally, there's a unique component to the bone marrow transplant patient with the constant threat of alloreactivity. And we know that this can be in the form of graft-versus-host disease. We can also see things like idiopathic pneumonia syndrome, which makes care of their respiratory failure very complex. Then once they're even in the hospital, we also know that these patients are at a different type of risk to come over. So in the general PICU population, many of our PICU patients are admitted through the emergency room or from an outside hospital. But the bone marrow transplant patients, they're already in the hospital when they're sick. We've published a study after the review of the Sprout database, which was a substance prevalence study, and 75% of these patients are already in the hospital at the time their critical illness develops, which is much different than the general PICU population. And then finally, when we know once they're intubated, the risk to go to ARDS to progress to ARDS is much, much higher in this population compared to the general PICU population. And in fact, one of our studies has shown that over 90% of intubated bone marrow transplant children have ARDS based on the palate criteria. There's also a high risk for multi-organ dysfunction. And then the mortality rate is much higher, over 60%, which is much higher than any of the other general pediatric populations that we care for. To summarize, the bone marrow transplant population is a unique, ever-growing population which represents a relatively large cohort of immunocompromised children in the pediatric intensive care unit with high risk for mortality. As we have set this basis, we will be focusing the rest of our episode on the need for early recognition and intervention in this special patient population. Dr. Rowan, a common conundrum faced by the PQ team, given limited resources and bad availability, is when to transfer a patient with BMT to the PICU, especially when they start requiring respiratory support on the floor. Are there any risk factors we as ICU physicians need to know which can help us transfer a child from the BMT floor to the PICU in a time-appropriate manner? That's a great question. There's been a few studies that have looked at specifically this question. In 2017, we published a paper in Pediatric Blood and Cancer where we evaluated over 80 allogeneic stem cell transplant recipients and tried to identify clinical risk factors that were associated with the development of respiratory failure. Out of these 87 patients that we looked at, a quarter of them went on to develop respiratory failure. And those that had respiratory failure had a significantly higher percent weight gain at multiple time points leading up to their respiratory failure. In fact, when we looked at that, we also combined it with looking at supplemental oxygen, and we found that just being on more than a liter took your risk of developing respiratory failure up by over 25. When we combined these together, we found that having weight gain and the need for supplemental oxygen was highly associated with the development of respiratory failure in pediatric stem cell transplant patients. There have also been a few studies done by Dr. Algonek out of um, St. Jude that has looked at the pediatric early warning score, and she has found that this early warning score 
is highly correlating with the need for PICU transfer in patients that are hospitalized with oncologic or stem cell transplant diagnoses. In 2017, she also reported that PEWS accurately predicted the need for an unplanned PICU transfer in resource-limited settings. So in 2018, a single-center study we published showed that adding weight gain to the pediatric early warning score increased the specificity as well as increase the area under the curve to predict that children that had undergone a bone marrow transplantation were at risk for clinical deterioration. That's an excellent summary of the literature. And key points that we can garner from these studies and that we can clinically apply is to consider trending weights and paying close attention to respiratory support as well as PEW scoring. Contingency planning and prompt recognition of when to initiate transfer from the floor to the PICU is essential in intervening early. So Dr. Rowan, what are the advantages of early transfer of these bone marrow transplant patients to the pediatric ICU? Well, we know that anytime we can have a controlled transfer of the pediatric patient that's not in extremis is beneficial to allow us to have time for multidisciplinary discussions. This allows us to have the opportunity to discuss calmly with the transplant physicians as well as the family to make sure that we all are on the same page for goals of care. And we need to make sure that we're balancing both bed availability, the stress that it puts on the family as we move them from the transplant floor to the PICU, and how complex it is to add in a new care team, along with the benefits of us being able to have time to have these goals of care conversation and in-depth multidisciplinary discussions. Dr. Rowan, in the case above, which was presented by Rahul, our patient was started on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and antibiotics prior to transfer to the PICU. Could you comment on the ideal interface to provide respiratory support uh, for such a patient? It's very interesting. We actually do not know a lot about how best to support pediatric bone marrow transplant patients non-invasively. In the adults, there's a fair amount of literature that's looked at various non-invasive support. They've done a lot of work looking at both high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive positive pressure. In 2017, there was a study published in Critical Care Medicine that looked at immunocompromised adults that were randomized to high-flow nasal cannula and standard oxygen and they found that there wasn't any difference. And similarly, in 2018, in JAMA, there was a really large study, 776 immunocompromised adults. They also looked at high-flow nasal cannula, comparing it to the standard oxygenation therapy, and they found there was no difference in 28-day mortality. There was no difference in dyspnea or patient comfort scores. We know that there's essentially very little data on high-flow nasal cannula in pediatric bone marrow transplant patients, but we know that we can't always just take what we know in the adults and apply it to the pediatric population because we know that children have different respiratory mechanics. There was a large multi-center randomized control trial looking at non-invasive positive pressure ventilation versus standard supplemental O2. And these patients were various immunocompromised adults, and this was published in JAMA in 2015. They showed there was no difference in either intubation rates or mortality. In 2016, there was another adult study, and this one looked at high-flow nasal cannula versus non-invasive positive pressure versus supplemental O2. And this one showed that those that were on supplemental O2 
had the highest risk for intubation and the, and the worst survival. A lot of people have questioned, does it help? Maybe these studies haven't shown a difference because we aren't putting the non-invasive on early enough. And there was a small study of 40 adults, and this was on an oncology floor, and they randomized them to early CPAP versus supplemental O2. And those that were on placed on early CPAP were much less likely to go to the ICU. But this study has not been replicated in bigger fashion. As far as pediatric data, there's actually very limited pediatric data. I don't know of any high-flow nasal cannula studies that are out there for the bone marrow transplant patient, for the pediatric bone marrow transplant patient. But there are a few studies looking at non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. In 2008, there was a fairly large pediatric cohort study looking at both oncology and bone marrow transplant patients. And they looked at the use of BiPAP and they found that there was a high failure rate with the use of BiPAP. And particularly the high failure rate was in the children that had hemodynamic compromise. How have you addressed the challenge of limited pediatric critical care studies on the pediatric bone marrow transplant population? I think this population is of a growing interest to a lot of intensivists. As we mentioned at the start of the podcast, this population is growing, so we're seeing them more often in the ICU. And so together through the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigator subgroup, we created the SEARCH database. The SEARCH is a study of intensive care and respiratory support in children post-hematopoietic stem cell transplant. So we made this database through a collaboration of 12 different institutions, and the focus was to figure out a better way to provide care for children that were invasively ventilated. We had 12 centers. They contributed 222 individuals that were all intubated and placed on mechanical ventilation. One of the unique findings that we found, which led into some of the other future studies that we had done, was that we found patients that were placed on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation had a higher risk of mortality and an increased risk of ARDS. Dr. Rowan, as we have commented on the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, let's transition to intubation and mechanical ventilation. What are the risk factors for intubation in BMT patients who are already receiving non-invasive positive pressure ventilation? Great question. Because in the previous search database, one of the findings that we had was that non-invasive ventilation was associated with a higher mortality. We then developed a second study that we looked at multi-center, 11 centers contributed 153 patients that were placed on non-invasive. And we looked at what were the risk factors to fail, and failure was defined as needing intubation and invasive mechanical ventilation. And in this um, cohort, the biggest risk factors for developing respiratory failure that required intubation was having a respiratory rate over 40 and needing vasoactives. We also found that having received a match-related donor was protective against intubation. This is a great summary point, which answers the question, when do we really need to consider these patients for intubation? And this study really gives us the perspective to pay attention to tachypnea as well as vasoactive use. Dr. Rowan, if a bone marrow transplant patient needs intubation, what does your study and the studies coming out of the search database inform us on how to approach these situations? Yeah, so in our collaborative non-invasive study, we have 153 patients. Over 60% of these patients progress to intubation. So there's a very high failure rate with this modality. 
And even more concerning is that there was an over 10% cardiac arrest rate during intubation in this cohort. And of those that arrested, almost none survived to discharge. Only 18% of those that arrested survived to discharge. So this really should increase our awareness as a profession about the risk of these children being on non-invasive for a prolonged period of time before we intubate them. And when we looked at this a little more in depth, we saw that those that arrested during intubation, 24% of them were started on their non-invasive positive pressure ventilation outside of the PICU, compared to only 8% who were started in the ICU really demanding the need for these close attention and close monitoring of these children while they're on non-invasive prior to getting intubated. We also know that from search that these children are at a high risk of ARDS once they're intubated. In fact, 92% of our search cohort within the first seven days of intubation developed ARDS. And we define that using PALIC criteria. So we know that they're at very high risk for oxygenation failure, very high risk for ARDS from the moment they get intubated. This is a great point, and it kind of mimics uh, some of the uh, adult studies which looked at the incidence of ARDS in intubated um, BMT patients. Dr. Rowan, just to take a step back, what were the characteristics of the children who survived with uh, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation? Yes. So when we look at who survived, it's very interesting because children that were successful on non-invasive ventilation, 90% of them survived to PICU discharge, which is a fantastic survival for this population in the ICU. But when we stretch that out to look at who survives their hospitalization, that survival rate drops down to 41%, regardless of whether they were successful or failed their non-invasive ventilation. And I think that really should demand us to take a closer look at what we're doing with our ventilator support for these patients. I worry, particularly with the rate of cardiac arrest during intubation and the poor survival to hospital discharge, that perhaps we are pushing non-invasive too far or too long, or potentially starting it too late in the course, we've missed our window of where the non-invasive might have been successful. If we comment on our case further, our patient on high-flow nasal cannula now continues to worsen and upon admission to the PICU is escalated to BiPAMP and is initiated on a norepinephrine infusion for vasoplegia and shock. The PICU team in this case decides to intubate. And we want to ask you, Dr. Rowan, what would be your approach in this high-risk situation? Yeah, so great decision to intubate in this clinical scenario. And I think that when you choose to intubate these patients, it really should be a multidisciplinary approach. We know that this is going to be a high-risk intubation, especially in the setting of hemodynamic instability. And then once they're intubated, right away, as soon as we're getting them on the ventilator, we need to have it in our mind that these patients are at high risk for ARDS. So we need to pay very close attention to lung protective ventilation. And, and we all know this, the, the lung protective ventilation that we need to pay close attention to is watching what our plateau or driving pressures are doing. We need to make sure that we're optimizing our peak for lung recruitment and try to minimize our FiO2. And, and the overall, the whole goal should be that we're focusing on lung protective ventilation to decrease the risk of ventilator-induced lung injury. Totally agree. And for our listeners, please refer to our prior episode on the high-risk intubation 
to review key management principles surrounding the hemodynamically unstable pediatric critical care patient. Dr. Rowan, this is a great overview. What specific numerical values or trends should we target in our management of these patients once they're intubated? Yeah, so I think, you know, specific numbers are always a little bit harder to to define, but from the search data, we have looked at specific cut points that seem to be associated with mortality. One of the first values that we looked at was the peak inspiratory pressure. And we found that patients who had a peak inspiratory pressure over 31 had an increased risk of dying from their respiratory failure. We also know that oxygenation index has been associated with an increased risk of mortality. There's been several studies that have published this. In 2012, we started some of our investigation by looking at the association of oxygenation index and mortality. And we found that for uh, every unit of OI that your oxygenation went up, your oxygenation index went up, there was a 13% increase in mortality. And that once you broke a oxygenation index of 18, your mortality increased by almost 25%. So when we looked at this in a larger cohort of the search database, we also found that oxygenation index was associated with mortality. And in trying to find modifiable risk factors, we looked at what, how much of FiO2 is playing into this. And we found that patients that needed more than 60% FiO2 had four times the odds of mortality. And when we looked at the FiO2 in relation to the PEEP, we found that patients who were managed with a high PEEP, low FiO2 strategy performed better and had better survival, particularly if this strategy was implemented within the first 24 hours of mechanical ventilation. And then finally, we saw that in the search database, there was definite room for improvement to allow for some more permissive hypercapnia, especially as we know that potentially limiting the peak inspiratory pressure might favorably influence survival. And so the summary for our listeners here is to limit peak pressures, initiate high PEEP early, and limit FiO2. So Dr. Rowan, our patient in the case is now intubated and has an oxygenation index of 28. The patient is starting to have increased peak inspiratory pressures to up to 35. Her SpO2 is about 87% with high mean airway pressures. How do you approach the management uh, of this patient at this stage? As you're in severe ARDS, it's very important to think about potential non-conventional modes of mechanical ventilation. And a lot of intensivists at this point would consider transition to high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, or APRV. And we know that from some previous studies done by Nadarieha Chop that patients who are transitioned, immunocompromised patients that are transitioned to these non-conventional modes, if they improve their oxygenation within 24 hours, they actually have a higher likelihood of surviving. We looked at these non-conventional modes out of the search database, and, and we found that 85 out of our 222 patients were placed on high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. We tried to um, look at those that were started early within 48 hours of ventilation compared to those that were started later in their course and that compared to those that were never on high-frequency oscillatory ventilation and to see which of those three groups did better. And, and there actually wasn't very much of a difference with survival or clinically relevant outcomes. But what we did find, which I think is of relevance for our profession, is that after a week of conventional mechanical ventilation, 
Every single patient that was transitioned to an oscillator after one week of ventilation, every single one of them died. And so I think what this really should bring to our mind is that if you're going to use this, if you're a proponent of high frequency, then you should use it early in the course. It's probably of little value after they've already been on the ventilator for a week. Would you mind commenting on the data related to early versus late oscillator initiation? Yes. So when we looked at those that were on the oscillator within two days of ventilation compared to those that were on after two days, the early oscillatory group had better survival. And then the group that was started on late, so after two days of mechanical ventilation, only 9% of those children survived to PICU discharge. And as we've already stated above, you really need to use caution starting this after a week of conventional mechanical ventilation because it probably does not offer us any survival benefit. Thank you for highlighting the literature summary. For our listeners, it's really important to consider high-frequency oscillatory ventilation within 48 hours to optimize survival. Unfortunately, the patient in our case above died during a stay in the PICU. If you reflect back, were there any opportunities for us to improve outcomes, Dr. Rovan? I I think this is a great question. And and clearly with any patient, there's a lot of patient-specific factors. But in general, I think that we need to move away from the mindset that all of these children die during their ICU admission and start to try to intervene earlier with this patient population. It is probably a good idea to transfer early to the PICU, particularly in the setting of respiratory failure. We need to pay attention on the floor and at times of rapid responses, what the trends of their weight are, and if we can do any better in optimizing diuresis if they're fluid overloaded. And then if they are in respiratory failure, Consider intubation early. Don't drag out the non-invasive or high-flow nasal cannula. There should be a lot of worry with the 10% cardiac arrest rate during intubation. Once we intubate early, if you are a proponent of high frequency, if you're going to consider using it, you should also consider using that early in the course because late use of high frequency seems to be associated with significantly poorer outcomes. Dr. Rowan, we appreciate your insights on today's podcast. As we wrap up, Would you mind highlighting your personal clinical pearls related to the critically ill pediatric bone marrow transplant population? Sure. So I think number one, transfer to the PICU early. I think the benefits outweigh the risk when we're transferring to the ICU early. Once they're there, have early aggressive diuresis and have early multidisciplinary conversations so that everyone is on the same page with goals of care and begin to implement a strategy that would offer and early intubation if it's appropriate for the patient. The second thing is once you intubate, really be focused on lung protective strategies. Remember that these patients are at high risk for progression to ARDS and implement those lung protective strategies of low tidal volume and high PEEP, low FiO2 strategies early in the course of ventilation. And then three, if you're gonna transition to the oscillator, Do it early, preferably within the first 48 hours of mechanical ventilation, because this seems to potentially be associated with an improved survival. And really think hard about transitioning to the oscillator after a week of conventional mechanical ventilation, because we had no survivors in our cohort. This concludes our episode today on non-invasive and invasive ventilation in children post-hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. We hope you found value in this podcast. 
We welcome you to share feedback and place a review on our podcast. PQ Talk on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you, Dr. Rowan, for your time today. Thank you for having me.